All right, turn in your Bible to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. As we continue through this psalm, today we're going to look at another stanza, another set of verses of this song, eight verses, in which the psalmist expresses things about God's law that we need to hear today. So the first half of the message, we'll be looking at the text of Psalm 119, hearing what the psalmist has to teach us in regard to God's law. And then in the second half of the message, we will see another principle about God's law related to the others that we've looked at in previous weeks. We're kind of broadening out, zooming out to see what does scripture teach us as a whole about God's law. And we're going to look at one particular instruction that is given to us, specifically this morning regarding the civil magistrates that God has given to us. So this morning we'll be reading Psalm 119 verses 57 through 64. Okay, Psalm 119, 57 through 64. Go ahead and follow along as I read this. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. Well, let's dig in and start with verse 57. The Lord is my portion, I promise to keep your words. What does it mean that the Lord is the psalmist's portion? Well, there's two things that come to mind from Scripture, and both of them are word pictures that can help us understand what he's saying. First of all, when the Israelites came into the land of Canaan and God divided up the land for them, he gave each tribe their portion. Their portion, their part of the whole, was the piece of land that they had looked forward to. It was a blessing to them. It was where they would find their fruitfulness. It would give them their food and their living. And so here the psalmist says that God is his portion. And second, Another way that this word is used in scripture, listen to how Psalm 16 verse 5 uses it. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. So here, this is meal imagery. And we use that today still, right? We talk about portion size with our meals. That's the imagery that's being used here. And here, the Lord is compared to the best food at a feast. It's the best part, the part that you look forward to, the part that you most enjoy, the richest part. So the psalmist says that the Lord is his portion and he seeks the Lord's favor with all of his heart. This is where his heart is set. Now, we often choose other things to set our heart on. We look to find joy and fulfillment elsewhere. But if we're looking to something that God created instead of to the creator himself, not only is that going to fail us, it's actually idolatry. It's elevating something that is less than God to the place of God. It's also trading in something eternal, God himself, for something temporary. Asaph says in Psalm 73, he says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
If you set your heart on God, you are setting your affections on something permanent, something eternal, and that's the best choice. There are no U-Haul trailers on hearses. The next verse, verse 58, I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. Once the psalmist's priorities and affections are in the right place, then it follows that he will keep God's words. He'll obey God's laws. And he asks God to graciously keep his promises to him. Now, since we've talked a good bit about this idea of relying on God's promises in the past, uh, we're going to move on this morning to the next verse. So look at verse 59. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. Note the language here. Since the psalmist says that he's turning his feet to God's testimonies, it means that they weren't turned that way before. So this is talking about repentance or conversion. How does this repentance start? Well, it starts with thinking on his ways. Repentance isn't primarily a matter of emotions, but it's a matter of thinking the same about things as God does. Jesus told the story about the prodigal son. That story is found in Luke 15. You remember the story, the younger son rebels against God, or against the father, and runs away. He runs off and he lives an immoral life. But then, as Jesus tells the story, he gets to the part that's kind of the turning point, where the son determines that it's now time to come home. And here's how he describes it. Jesus says that when he came to himself, he said... How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. But notice that that repentance happened when he came to himself. In other words, when he came into his right mind. When he started thinking rightly, he considered his ways, he considered his condition, he thought on his ways, and then came repentance and conversion. Charles Spurgeon is insightful here. He says, consideration is the commencement of conversion. First we think, and then we turn. When the mind repents of ill ways, the feet are soon led into good ways. But there will be no repenting until there is deep, earnest thought. Many men are averse to thought of any kind. And as to thought upon their ways, they cannot endure it, for their ways will not bear thinking of. Sometimes it's just that we live such busy, fast-paced lives that we don't take time to think, to consider. But God has designed us to reflect on our ways. And once the psalmist thinks, then he does. He acts. He obeys. A lot of us think that the doing part isn't crucial. I mean, after all, as long as my intent was right, does it really matter if I didn't get the obedience part perfect? What if I was really only doing what I thought was right? Wouldn't God honor the fact that I thought this was a good choice? Isn't God just going to consider my intentions? But God will not be served according to our own designs. No, he has spoken. He has defined what obedience is. 
what worship is. Not only must we think on our ways, we also need to obey his laws. When the psalmist says that he turned his feet to God's testimonies, he's talking about the course of his life, the path that he's on, the way that his feet go. What's natural for us is to go the way we think is best. That's the rule that we tend to live by. We do whatever seems best to us, but that means that we set the rules. In other words, we're just living according to our own law. We're living autonomously as a law unto ourselves. But instead, the psalmist sets the example here that we should follow. We should give ourselves over to God's testimonies as the rule or the standard for our life. Then in verse 60, the psalmist says, I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. See, this is the right conclusion to true repentance. Obeying God without delay. Parents, that's what you want from your kids. You want obedience without delay. And God wants the same thing from his children. Spurgeon says that speed in repentance and speed in obedience are two excellent things. We are too often in haste to sin. Oh, that we may be in a greater hurry to obey. When Thomas Manton explains this verse, he compares it to your situation if you were to get a serious wound or gash. Your priority, he says, would be to take care of the wound before you worry about mending the holes in your clothes. One is more permanent and vital. The other is more temporary and less important. Well, repentance and obedience should be of high priority to us. There's great danger in letting sin go not dealt with. And so then he goes on to say, you can never part with sin soon enough. It is a cursed inmate that will surely bring mischief upon the soul that harbors it. It will set its own dwelling on fire. Then he says, you know how it is when there's something in your eye, or if you step on a thorn, you drop everything to get it out. Isn't sin a greater mischief, he says, that we should sooner look into and part with? And so the psalmist says that he hastens and does not delay to obey. In verse 61 then, the psalmist says, Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. How bad do things have to get before you're willing to betray God? What difficulty will you need to face before you're willing to violate his law? Jesus taught us, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So what do you value most? When the pressure's on, what choice will you make? What do you value as true treasure? The author of Hebrews encourages his readers who had suffered persecution by saying, You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. See, it's a question of what you value most. Manton remarks that if you're truly acting according to conscience, doing what you know and believe to be right, then you won't be put off by the cost. If there's suffering or loss that comes to you because you obeyed God's law, you'll be willing to go through that because you're doing what you know is right. 
conscience, he says, looks to the obligation of duty, what we must do or not do, not to the course of our interests. In other words, not what is safe, but what is duty. In verse 62, the psalmist says, at midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. So believing what God has said in his word, trusting that his law is what's best, leads us then to praise him. God has blessed us with his law. It's not a burden, but a blessing. He's showed us what his design is, what the best way for us to live is. So, Manton says, faith and praise live and die together. Where one is, you'll always find the other. If we're not grateful, then we actually run the risk of losing the blessing. We see this in Israel's history. In Hosea chapter 2, God is judging Israel. Listen to what he does and why he does it. This is Hosea 2. God speaking of Israel. He says, and she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain the wine and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Israel misused the blessings God had given even to the point that they no longer recognized them as blessings from God. Does that not describe our nation today? We've forgotten God. We've abused and misused his blessings. And we no longer even remember that the blessings actually came from him in the first place. And so it's fitting that God is removing those blessings from us. And it may be that in, in losing the blessings, we actually come to see their value. Back in verse 61, the psalmist spoke about the cords of the wicked who opposed him. Well, now in verse 63, he speaks of those who are his allies. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. And there's a couple of things to notice here. First of all, who is it that he's going to take as his companions? They have two qualifications, fear of God and obedience. They're not just the ones who claim to be followers of God. These are the ones who actually obey God's law. Spurgeon says it this way. He says, he looked for inward godly fear, but he also expected to see outward piety in those whom he admitted to his society. Hence, he adds, and of them that keep thy precepts. And the second thing to notice here, too, is he considers himself a companion of all those who fear and obey. If you fear God, the psalmist says, and you obey his law in its fullness, then you're on my team. Now, the concept of identity is a very prominent one in our culture today. What group are you part of? How do you identify? What is your concept of who you are? Are you part of this group? Or are you part of that group? Well, here the psalmist is telling us who he chooses to identify with. He is a companion of those who fear the Lord. Like Moses, who the writer of Hebrews tells us refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and instead chose to be mistreated with the people of God. 
Moses identified with God's people. Here the psalmist sets the same example for us to follow. And then verse 64. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. If you were to flip back to Psalm 8, you would hear the psalmist ask, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Thomas Manton comments on our verse in Psalm 119, verse 64 here, that everything in the earth daily speaks the praise of God if only we take time to hear it. And they speak of his steadfast love. When man fell into sin, the creation fell too because man was responsible for it. The ground was cursed. Animals after the flood have the fear of man. And if he wanted to, God could have just destroyed them all. But they continue to exist because God has given them to us to bless us. It's his steadfast love. And in response to the steadfast love shown to him throughout the creation, the psalmist wants to know God's statutes. A God who is gracious and merciful to us like that can be trusted when he gives us his law to live by. Well, that's our text this morning. And as I said, we're going to turn now a little bit to another principle about God's law as we zoom out to the rest of scripture and we think about You know, the psalmist is going on about his love for God's law, his delight in God's law. So what is it about God's law that actually shows us this is the best way to live? And the particular aspect of the law that we want to talk about this morning has to do with the civil magistrate or government official. And the principle that we want to see is this. Civil magistrates are to carry out their duties as servants of God. Civil magistrates, government officials, are to carry out their duties as servants of God. In the way that God has designed the world, there are different spheres of authority with God-ordained leaders in each one. The three main spheres of authority are the family, the church, and the state. Each of them has authority given by God over a specific realm. So what God has given to the family does not belong to the church or to the state. And what God has given to the church does not belong to the family or to the state. And what God has given to the state does not belong to the family or to the church. But in their own realms, rulers are supposed to follow God's design, to follow God's laws. The Bible helps us out here by giving us symbols for the authority in each realm. So this may help us to kind of get our mind around it. Gary DeMar explains, he says, the the symbol of family authority is the rod. That's Proverbs 13. While the symbol of church authority is the keys, Matthew 16. And for the state, it's the sword, Romans 13. So the family doesn't use the keys. In other words, excommunication, the entrance and, you know, who's in and who's out of the church. And the family also doesn't use the sword. That's capital punishment. It only uses the rod. That's corporal punishment. And the same goes for the other realms too. Now, as far as the state goes, the civil magistrate, they use the sword to execute criminals in capital cases. That authority that is in the state is not ultimate. 
It's delegated. The authority belongs to God. But God delegates the authority to the state to carry out his justice. So when the state uses the sword, it's supposed to be done in obedience to God's law. So, for example, think of the story of Elijah. In 1 Kings 19, we read the story that the the people of Israel had killed the prophets of the Lord with the sword. Well, it says it's the people, but if you go back a chapter, you get more specific. And we find that it's actually Queen Jezebel who has used the sword against the prophets. And of course, that is not a right use of the sword. That's the state, it's the queen, using the sword, but using it wrongly. And ultimately, Jezebel will pay the price for her sin. In 2 Kings chapter 9, the Lord told Jehu, once he was anointed as king, you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. Now that is the right use of the sword what God's telling Jehu to do. So you have two monarchs, two civil magistrates, two government officials, Queen Jezebel, King Jehu, who follows after, who both use the sword. But one of them faces God's judgment because she used the sword against God's law. And one is blessed because he used the sword in accord with God's law. So follow the logic. When God gives the power of the sword to the civil magistrate, that doesn't mean he can use it in any way he chooses. He must use it to advance God's law, to carry out punishments according to God's law. As our principle says, the civil magistrate is to carry out his duties as a servant of God. When people violate God's law, God's wrath rightly rests on them. When the civil magistrate punishes those violations of God's law, he's expressing God's wrath. So the vengeance is the Lord's, but it's the civil magistrate who carries out that punishment of the people's disobedience against the Lord's law. The Bible also clearly teaches us that God is the king over all the kingdoms of the earth. We read it already once this morning, but I'm going to read again for you Psalm 47. And listen again to the language of this psalm as it describes God as king over all the earth. And think about what the implications are then for the rulers of the nations. This is a short psalm. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loves, Selah. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. See, 
God reigns over all the nations, and the rulers of those nations are to submit to him. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's universal. It's exclusive. It's all-encompassing. Greg Bonson writes, as he explains this, Consequently, all earthly kings must be thought of as God's delegated authorities. Their rulership and authority is subsumed under the kingship of God. They represent his throne. All civil magistrates, whether in Israel or among the nations, are God's officers under his kingly authority and morally responsible to his throne. Now, I want to read you another quote from Bonson, just because I think it's helpful and he says it well. It's a little bit longer, so just kind of concentrate for a minute or two to follow along with his argument. Here's what he says. Now then, if God is the great judge, if it is his judgment which is righteous and his law which defines justice, then by placing the civil magistrate and judge under obligation to carry out his commandments in the nation, God constitutes them his deputies on earth. The civil magistrate is the vicegerent under the righteous judge. Thus they are forbidden to condemn the righteous. Instead, let judgment run down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. That is, establish justice in the gate. To do this, the magistrate or judge must enforce the law of God. And such is what he's commanded to do. You shall do no unrighteousness in judgment, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. So the civil magistrate is God's deputy in the state. He's to carry out God's will, not his own. He's supposed to rule justly. Well, how do you know what is just? You measure it by God's law. He's to judge in righteousness. What is righteousness? It's the character that accords with God's law. Now think about this. If the civil magistrate can express God's wrath and he can represent God's vengeance, like Romans 13 says, it follows he's the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And this is the case law that we're going to use today. Most of the time, we've always looked at laws from the Old Testament, but because the reason for that is I want you to see the continuity of what God teaches in his law in the Old Testament on through today. But this is just really clearly stated in Romans 13, so that's where I'm going to have you look with me. In Romans 13, Paul is saying that we should obey the governing authorities. He says they're not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. And then in verse 4, we read this. He is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, twice in that verse, the civil magistrate is called God's servant. Now, whose will does a servant do? He does the will of his master. That's what a civil magistrate, a government employee, is to do. He is to serve God. And he bears the sword, not to do his own will. He bears the sword 
as a representative of God to carry out God's wrath on the evildoer. And that's why our principle this morning is that civil magistrates are to carry out their duties as servants of God. They are to obey God's law, promote God's law, judge according to God's law, reward obedience to God's law, punish disobedience to God's law, because they are God's servants. And that's what governs how they're supposed to carry out their duties. Let me give you this morning two contrasting examples to illustrate the wrong way and the right way to think about this. Okay? First, the Dalai Lama, the spiritual leader of the Tibetan people. In his 2015 book, My Appeal to the World, he begins by saying, For thousands of years, violence has been committed and justified in the name of religion. For that reason, I say that in the 21st century, we need a new form of ethics beyond religion. I am speaking of secular ethics. So he's calling for a new standard of right and wrong. One completely separated from religion. In other words, he's saying, leave God out of it. Humanity can determine our own path of right and wrong. Well, what would that mean for our rulers if they adopted this view? There's three main possibilities. First, they could rule according to what they each individually think is right and wrong. But then whose standard trumps the others? It's really just which official is the most powerful. Second, they could rule according to the determination of an elite minority, the powerful, the well-educated, the well-connected, the scientific community. But what's to prevent tyranny then at the hands of the elite? Or third, they could rule by democracy, the will of the people. But what happens if the people are evil? What happens when the people's opinion changes? Each of these three options are simply man-centered. They're each a version of man making himself autonomous, making himself his own law. What the Dalai Lama proposes is disastrous and it's the path we're currently on. By way of contrast, I want you to consider the tradition according to which King Charles took the throne of England yesterday. And I'm going to read this for you as it's given in the program for the coronation ceremony as it was published by Lambeth Palace. And I'm just highlighting a few relevant sections here, uh, parts of the ceremony. And my purpose is not to say we should have a monarchy. That's not the point. I just want you to hear how the traditions of this particular nation intentionally embody a lot of what we've talked about, about civil magistrates ruling as servants of God. Now, it's a totally separate question as to whether or not they actually do that. But in the language of the ceremony, you can hear what the original intent was. Okay? So just a few bits and pieces from the ceremony. One thing that happens during the ceremony is the presentation of the Bible. And it's the moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland who does this. And here's what he says to the king. He says, sir, 
to keep you ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God as the rule for the whole life and government of Christian princes, receive this book, the most valuable thing this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. As part of the oath that the king is asked to take, the Archbishop of Canterbury says to him, will you to the utmost of your power maintain the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel? Will you to the utmost of your power maintain in the United Kingdom the Protestant reformed religion established by law? And also as part of the oath, the king says, I, Charles, do solemnly and sincerely in the presence of God profess, testify, and declare that I am a faithful Protestant and that I will, according to the true intent of the enactments which secure the Protestant succession to the throne, uphold and maintain the said enactments to the best of my powers according to law. Another part of the ceremony is the presentation of the sword. The Archbishop of Canterbury um, says a prayer, and then while he's up at the altar with the sword, he prays this. Hear our prayers, O Lord, we beseech thee, and so direct and support thy servant, King Charles. You hear the language? God's servant, King Charles. That he may not bear the sword in vain, but may use it as the minister of God to resist evil and defend the good through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And then he turns around and he gives the sword to the king and the archbishop says, receive this kingly sword. May it be to you and to all who witness these things a sign and symbol not of judgment but of justice, not of might but of mercy. Trust always in the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit. And so faithfully serve our Lord Jesus Christ in this life, that you may reign forever with him in the life which is to come. Amen. And then the king stands and the sword is, is put on his girdle and then he sits down. And then the archbishop says this, with this sword, do justice, stop the growth of iniquity, Protect the Holy Church of God and all people of goodwill. Help and defend widows and orphans. Restore the things that are gone to decay. Maintain the things that are restored. Punish and reform what is amiss and confirm what is in good order. That doing these things you may be glorious in all virtue and so faithfully serve our Lord Jesus Christ in this life. That you may reign forever with him in the life which is to come. Amen. Then he's given the orb, which is this circular thing that he has in his hand with a cross on top of it. And the archbishop says to him, receive this orb set under the cross and remember always the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Now they cut this part a little bit short. If you go back to the 1689 version, it says this. And when you see this orb thus set under the cross, remember that the whole world is subject to the power and empire of Christ our Lord. For all power is given unto him, both in heaven and earth. He rules in the kingdoms of men and gives them to whomever he pleases. He is the blessed and only potentate, the prince of the kings of the earth. 
on whose vesture and on his thigh a name is written, King of kings and Lord of lords, so that no man can reign happily on earth who derives not his authority from him and directs not all his administrations and actions according to his laws. Then the king is given the ring, and the archbishop says, Receive this ring, a symbol of kingly dignity, and a sign of the covenant sworn this day between God and king, king and people. Then he's given a glove, and the archbishop says, Receive this glove, may you hold authority with gentleness and grace, trusting not in your own power, but in the mercy of God who has chosen you. And then he's given the scepter and the rod. And the archbishop says, Receive the royal scepter, the ensign of kingly power and justice, and the rod of equity and mercy, a symbol of covenant and peace. May the spirit of the Lord, which anointed Jesus at his baptism, so anoint you this day that you might exercise authority with wisdom and direct your counsels with grace, that by your service and ministry to all your people, justice and mercy may be seen in all the earth through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And then when the crown is put on his head, there's a prayer of blessing that says, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, bless we beseech thee this crown and so sanctify thy servant, Charles, upon whose head this day thou dost place it for a sign of royal majesty, that he may be crowned with thy gracious favor and filled with abundant grace and all princely virtues through Jesus Christ our Lord, who with thee and the Holy Spirit liveth and reigneth supreme over all things, one God, world without end. Amen. Now, you could certainly argue that all of these signs and symbols and prayers and oaths are nothing more than leftover ceremonies from a past era. And I would agree that to a great extent that's true. But they're there for a reason. There was a day when these things were beliefs that were sincerely and wholeheartedly held. There was an understanding that the civil magistrate all the way up to the king was the servant of God. He was God's representative, delegated authority, and that everything he did was to be governed by God's laws because he was serving God. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that this is how we should do things, that this is somehow like the right form of government or anything like that. But I will say that what they include in the ceremony gets a lot closer to biblical teaching on the role of the civil magistrate than most of what we see. It, it's separate from the church, right? The, this is the state and it's separate from the church, but they're serving the same Lord and obeying the same law. Civil magistrates are to carry out their duties as servants of God. It's a choice between in these two things, the way of secularism, what the Dalai Lama says, very man-focused, or the truths that are embedded in those ceremonies we talked about, even if they're completely, actually, practically forgotten today. Those truths were there for a reason. Well, 
We've mentioned before the distinction between justification and sanctification as we think about the law of God. And I want to emphasize that again this morning. When we talk about being declared righteous in God's sight, you cannot earn that standing by obeying the law. Can't be done. We are all sinners. We all fall short of God's standard. The only way we can meet his approval that we can gain salvation is through the righteousness of Christ, what Jesus has done. And so we have faith in him. But once we become a follower of Christ, then we're turned back to the law, not as a means of salvation, but as a means of living according to God's design. That's sanctification. That's becoming holy more and more day by day. And God's given us his law as a tool to help us become more like him. His law reveals to us the way that he's designed the world. And that's true on an individual level. It's true in the family. It's true in the church. And it's true in the state. This morning, as we've heard from the psalmist in Psalm 119, we've seen that the Lord is his portion. The Lord is what satisfies him. That's what his heart is set on. He's told us that he thought on his ways, he considered himself, and once he thought, then he turned his feet toward God's testimonies. So we should think about our ways and then respond in action that aligns with God's law. And when he acted, he didn't delay. He hurried to keep God's commandments. We should do the same. Even when the psalmist faced opposition from the wicked, he was still committed to obeying God's law. He kept God's law even when the wicked tried to ensnare him. He also told us that he intentionally chose that those who obey God's law would be his companions. He wants to associate with those who fear God and obey him. That's a pattern we should seek to follow in our lives too. And he reminded us that the earth is full of God's steadfast love. When we see God's love for us, then desiring to know his law is a fitting response because we want then to live in a way that pleases him. It says that we believe God has our best at heart. It shows gratitude for the blessing that God has shown to us. And we've also seen this morning what the scripture says about the expectations on a civil magistrate, that he would serve God by carrying out his duties in accord with God's law. The role of the civil servant is really to be a servant first and foremost of God. That understanding of civil service is rare today. And so it's appropriate that as we pray that God would increase our love for his law, that we actually also pray the same for our leaders, that they too would learn to love God's law. Join me in praying this morning. Lord, as we've heard the psalmist again expressing his love for your law, we want that to be true in our lives. Teach us to love your law. There's times that we still rebel against it. Our sin nature comes to the forefront and we want to walk away from your law. We want to do the opposite. So I pray that you would teach us to love your law. And in the same way, we pray for our rulers, our leaders, those in in the state, in government positions. We pray that they would come to understand their role as your servants. 
that they too would learn to love your law and that that would shape how they carry out their duties. Teach us also how to support them in this, to encourage and challenge them, to call them to account when it's right to do so, but to encourage them to promote righteousness and justice. Help us to live according to your law. Oh, how I love your law. We pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.